0: Um, we talked about doing this when I last saw you in Melbourne, um, but it's awesome to be able to do it face-to-face, as we already chatted about. It is much, much better when you're talking to someone yeah. to be able to see
1: them and feel them, I agree. So I
0: appreciate you making time during this oh. week of a lot of a lot of other bodies here for me. Um, the, the thing that attracted me to, to you and a lot of other people is you feel like a seeker, so someone who's gone on the path of what we already think we know, or that is there's a, a, a doing life normal, live, you die, and then you go, you, you, I started engineering because I like the why of things. Mm-hmm. So just for, um, to get us started maybe, uh, at which point did you feel that there was a lack in the understanding of how to improve flexibility for the average adult who wasn't from a dance or gymnastics background? And perhaps before you, you get to there, um, Maybe briefly just say, what was the path you'd taken to get to that point, before that realisation?
1: I can tell you precisely when the realisation occurred, and it was actually when I was attending a place that no longer exists called the Australian Academy of Ballet, run by a wonderful dance teacher called Val Tweedy, and her assistant Peggy. And in those days, they used to run limber classes every morning, uh, which all of the... Students who were enrolled in that school would would be required to attend, so there was usually 15 or 20, some 25 students in the room. And I'd been a middle distance runner for many years at that point, I think from memory I was about 27 years old then, something like that, and I couldn't reach my fingers much below my knees, let alone touch my toes, which incidentally is pretty normal flexibility for middle distance runners. And I went along to Val Tweedy's limber classes before I went to work each day. I might have been 25 rather than 27, I honestly can't remember, somewhere around there. And I realised that limbering, which most people would know by the more modern term now, mobility work, was not actually effective for taking a very stiff 25, 26, 27 year old male body like mine, and making it flexible. And at the same time, I was experiencing the young dance students' capacity to bend and flex and move and so on. And it it became obvious to me very quickly that they lived in a different body to the one that I lived in. And I really wanted to experience what that would feel like for me. So that was actually the beginning of my interest in these things. But the realization um, that the techniques were not effective for adults came very quickly. I, I did those classes every day for two years, and my flexibility didn't improve. And so, it must have been 27, so in fact, when I went off to Japan, which I did, I had my 30th birthday in Japan, and I was a living student at a martial arts dojo there, they likewise could not understand why I wasn't perfectly flexible, because I was only 30 years old, and I'd been doing martial arts for 10 years. Everyone who is in the traditional martial arts world, the vast majority of people who have been traditionally trained in countries like Japan or China, they start when they're very young. I mean, the classic thing for those movies you've seen about the Shaolin Temple students, for example, they're very accurate. Mm. And so it was one day when I was working out in a ward gym, and I remember I was sitting in this gym, and I was, again, still trying to stretch ineffectively, and i reached my i was sitting in straddle and i reached out to a leg press machine and i held onto it i was just going to try and pull myself a bit deeper into it but i have to say i'd pulled my adductors doing that many times before so i was pretty hesitant about doing that but i reached out to this leg press machine and something made me think about trying to pull back against that resistance so i was already at full reach and i reached out to the bar or whatever it was And I set myself up and I just gently pulled back to what we now would recognize as a contract, relax kind of approach or PNF type approach. And instantly when I reached forward after doing that pulling back, instantly I could feel that something had changed in my body. And what had been experienced as the restriction, the end of that range of movement, was no longer there, it was a few inches further in. I thought, yes, Mm. I found something here. Mm. So it was actually when I came back to Australia and I found the original proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation handbook at a remainder shop, and I read it from cover to cover. And two things fascinated me about that. One is that there's no mention of how to stretch in that book, even though everyone who uses the term PNF stretching thinks they know what the book is about. It is actually a handbook of patterns of movement to re-educate the cerebrally or spinally injured. That's what the book is about. And they're all practitioner applied. So the nurses and doctors that would use this technique would, for example, roll such a patient over onto their side, um, help them to bring their knees into position, help them to get their feet underneath them, hands of support and then stand up. That's a typical PNF spiral diagonal pattern. And on one page, page 98 from memory, it had a single paragraph about the five methods that they had come up with to assist an improvement in the range of movement for the cerebrally and spinally injured. But there was no description of how to do any of these things. And in fact, what they called hold relax is what we then now call contract relax because it much better describe what actually happens. You basically do an nice isometric contraction and then you go further. Now since then, since those days, the early days, we've, we have added back in some of the other techniques they spoke about as well, agonist antagonist for example, Um, which our friend Emmett calls end-range closing. So basically um, trying to apply force at the end of the range of movement, but not with the muscles that you're stretching. That's the contract-relax approach, but rather the muscles that we're on the inside of the curve that we're moving towards. So the classic example of that one would be, for your listeners, it would be if you're doing a toe-touching kind of exercise, you put your hands on a block, in front of your feet and you use your groin muscles, specifically hip flexors and abdominal muscles, to press the hands firmly onto that block, take a breath in and then see if you can go further. And what we found is that for some people that works extremely well um, and for some people it has literally no effect whatsoever. Mm. However, for the kind of training that you do, men's gymnastic strength training, you absolutely need strength at the end of the range of movement and the reason I'm mentioning this now is that I think those two approaches together, contract, relax, and agonist, antagonist, strengthening as well as um, improving the stretching, those two things really flatten the force curve that any muscle is capable of applying. And so it really does make you stronger in a fundamental way,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in, in a kind of way that no conventional weight training can do.
0: So when you, were first, when you first found that book in the op shop and you then thought, this is kind of what I'm discovering and learning... Did you spend any time, sort of, searching the interwebs or um, anything to see if there were other people? Now this is going to sound crazy, but there was no internet knew in those you were days, so that. <laughs> I called it the internet, But was was there any search to see if there were others already playing with this, or did you just think, "No, oh, I'm going to keep down this new path and
1: um, I, I've been a tinkerer since the day dot. Um, and as soon as I realized that there were some other things that one could do rather than conventionally just trying to go further in the range of movement, which is typical for um, yoga or typical in the way that young dancers learn how to stretch, because I did try all the methods that they use, and all the methods that they use were just basically hanging around in a position and then trying to go further. And they work. They work if you're fascia is supple enough and you're young enough. And they will also work for older people too, but the speed of the improvement is glacially slow
0: yeah so and that sort of brings on to this next part you know and this is where i think um you have something a body of knowledge that there's very few people out there do and that's when you and live started the classes at the university
1: well let me make a small correction there i started the classes long before live arrived yeah, on the scene no no before you guys met. she um it was way be- it was actually way before we met i think we'd been running classes there I'm guessing now, and Liv, if she were here, would be would be correcting me. I'm sure, but the classes I think had been running for eight or nine, maybe even ten years before I met her. I had the good fortune of meeting her, wow. and yeah, she, of course, now that we we've been working together now for a very long period of time, and she's contributed a huge amount to the work um, which I simply didn't. Yeah, I mean, all the moving stuff, for example, the flow work that she does. That has been immensely helpful for her in her own body. And I think she mentioned the other day that the quest for her, she was already flexible. Um, she can do pike and pancake and a pullback bend and all those things that our, that our listeners want to do. But the fact is, she's a tense person. And so for her, the interesting question was, how to, why is it that, that I'm flexible, that I'm tense? And someone like me who's relatively inflexible compared to her, but I'm completely relaxed... And it's it's the intersection of those two things, how one can move oneself more to that relaxed state. That's what led her into designing the flow sequence because for her and her body, the moving meditation, which all those flowing sequences really are, if we sort of get underneath to the principles of what's happening underneath those things, that for her has been extremely effective. And just on that note, if I can just add an important detail, in the West, people have become absolutely well, fascinated slash obsessed with sitting meditation, but in fact the original sutra that talks about meditation, the Satipatthana Sutta, as it's called in Pali, um, speaks about the four postures of meditation, not one. And, that, and one of them is moving. Moving, lying, standing, and sitting. Mm-hmm. Now in the West, for all sorts of reasons, people have become really interested in vipassana in meditation in particular, but more generally, there is a deep belief and in my view, it's an inaccurate belief that meditation properly done is done sitting. That's simply not true. Mm. All the other postures are equally valuable. And we really must find two things. One, we must find a meditation object that works for us. And the reason I mentioned that is I was having a conversation last night with a woman here who was saying breath, which is the traditional meditation object, doesn't work for her because as soon as she concentrates her awareness or brings her awareness to her breath, she feels a panic experience. And so I said, well what part of the body can you feel really well and she says I can really feel my hands well and I said well just a suggestion but the next time you sit down to meditate or whatever form you're doing move your awareness to your hand ignore the breath and just simply take note of when your attention is pulled away by the thought stream and then gently bring it back to the hand because my friend Patrick Carney he is insistent that the breath is only one meditation object of a great many. And you really need to work with something that is the most familiar or the most accessible to you. And this woman, clearly, for her, the breath wasn't going to work for her. And let's find out. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll report back to you whether or not that was effective, but I'm sure it will be more effective than the breath.
0: So we're only a few minutes in, Sorry? and we're already perfectly segued into my discussion here. <laughs> so it's been I haven't days.
1: seen this script, by the way.
0: I know you haven't. This is, this is my crazy scribblings. I've been here four days, OK, and I make notes just things to remind me of what you've said that i want to ponder on later i'll read you a few of the things that have already jumped out for me and you'll see how many of these are starred Uh, the sea of sensation you'll feel you have to observe the interoception of it your full attention must be directed inwards you try not to anticipate the feeling or the depth you have to ask yourself how does it feel where does it feel can i relax more You've got the low level threats that are helping you go to another notch of letting go. The concept of uh, relaxing, then experiencing that concept, and then you can access it at will. Character barriers and armors, and how you protect yourself there. So, all these things don't mention stretching at all. No. So, my question is in your view, is the ultimate benefit to have physical ease? or a better, deeper connection to yourself? And I know you can't split those easily, but in other words, is it stretch therapy or is it stretch therapy? Where's the golden nugget? Well,
1: really to talk about any one of those things could be a a 30-minute thing on its own. The short answer is this. No matter what situation you find yourself in in this life, it will be helped by relaxing more. The primordial reflex in the human being is that when the system is stressed or threatened, no one ever responds to that kind of internal or external stimulus by lengthening, relaxing and opening. It's always protecting, closing, getting angry, uh, holding, Mm. etc., etc. So, again, without going into the deep biology of this, the fact is that hardwired in every cell in your body is the tendency to contract and to protect if threatened. And if you've ever done any biological studies and you've seen what an amoeba, those little single cell animals look like on a Petri dish, for example, if you introduce, if you touch an amoeba with a probe, it immediately retracts that part of itself. That's in us. That's a very ancient genetic inheritance we've had since before we were humans, in fact. And all living tissues exhibit this and also all living tissues exhibit something else which is not obvious, that is, as they age, they all get stiffer, they all get harder. And so if you think about a young sapling of a tree, for example, compared to an old tree, the young sapling blows around in the wind, goes any direction it needs to, and it's completely flexible, and an old tree either resists the force or it breaks or falls over. And so I know it's a bit of a crude analogy, but the fact is we're much more like the old trees than we're like the young saplings so you mentioned in one of those many things that you mentioned interoception now i have long argued that the kind of knowledge that we need to have about ourselves to live more comfortably at war with more ease as human beings and also to be able to be more in the moment more often so more present in the common Mm. vernacular interoception is the sense to cultivate and interoception is nothing more than the sense the experience in the continually unfolding presence of what's actually happening inside me, not as a thought stream. So you you alighted a couple of things there and moved from experience to concept. Moving from experience to concept will only help you if you're trying to generalize or talk about the experience. If you're trying to experience the experience, then rather than move to concept, you want to move away from concepts into experience, deep experience, and that's what I mean by the sea of sensations. Because in the beginning, when you try to experience your internal state, we don't have the discrimination to separate or to understand or to derive a great deal of meaning from our internal state. Why? Because it's an undifferentiated sea of sensations in the beginning. This is happening, that's happening, I feel this heat sensation here, I feel gurgling there or whatever's happening in your body. And in the beginning, for someone who is not practiced at experiencing the unfolding living experience of being a human being, it's just sensations. But as you become more experienced, and the reason why we like stretching so much is that stretching provides the ideal set of tools to actually explore and differentiate that internal sensation, it is at hand at all times. We can use those little tools and techniques to refine the sensations that we experience in the body and uh, listeners who haven't done this will have to take this on faith but what happens is that what is a rather or completely disorganized sea of sensations in the body in time takes on meaning And, and the way we express this is we say in time after you've been working with your body this way for long enough your body will actually start talking to you now not in words that's something that's it's difficult to understand when we're using words, of course, to talk about these things, and and it, too it needs to be mentioned that as soon as you start using the world of words, um, you're moving away from experience, because words are always descriptors; they're pointing to something; they're not the actual thing itself. Mm. And so, hence that very famous expression, the map is not the territory. The map is a representation of the territory. Words and descriptions and anything that we can say or write, they're all pointers. They're not the actual thing itself. So for us as Westerners in particular, where our attention is drawn externally by so many different things and influences, the the gold, in my experience anyway, is found by being still enough. And that's why meditation is used for long meditation is useful, sitting in a stretch and doing nothing, not looking at your phone while you're trying to work out or definitely not listening to music while you're working out. Once you're still, the attention naturally goes inside and if you spend enough time with your attention inside, the communication between what's happening inside and what the mind thinks is happening inside the body, they become more congruent, they become closer to each other. And the net result of all this which is a curious and interesting thing. But the net result of all this is grace and ease in the body. The actual experience of being a living, breathing human being takes on completely different qualities, deeper and also more enjoyable qualities. And one is simply more relaxed and more present. Now, what do I mean by present? Well, if you're thinking about something, you're not actually present to what's happening in the unfolding moment. The the mind, as curious as this sounds, and, and when... And when people talk about this, many people have a very negative reaction to it. We have to have a mind. We've all got a mind. We can't avoid having one. So, but I do remember a teacher said to me once, he said, the mind is a wonderful servant but a terrible master. And so the, the point here is, and it's not an obvious one I don't think, but when you're thinking about something, you're not in the present moment you're either being um, worried or taken back by something that happened in the past or you're anxious about something that's going to happen in the future, whether it be the momentary future, like the next second or two. And we talk In our work, we talk about the apprehension reflex when we're stretching. In other words, don't spend any time thinking about what this could feel like, and especially if it's an injured part of your body, what it could feel like is going to make you feel quite anxious indeed, if you think about stretching it, particularly something like a hamstring injury, for example. Instead of that, you take a breath in you let your whole tummy go soft you move your awareness into that part of the body you're going to work again you let your tummy go soft because it'll tighten up again in anticipation of what it's going to feel like take a breath in and you very carefully move to a point where the intensity coming from that part of the body is actually tolerable Mm -hmm. not trying to force ourselves to go past that point we need to Open a conversation with that sensation. The sensation is stopping you from going further, right? Right. Like in everything that we do when we're stretching. And so we move up to that point. And this is a very delicate and it's not a it, not an easy point to find. In fact, the, the finding of that point depends crucially on your own personality too. If you've got one like mine, it's push through, go harder. You might even relate to that yourself. So somehow we've got to pull at that natural, or for what? what for us is a natural instinct back, and actually experience what that point is mm. at that moment. You're and kind of then little... we relax, and then we ask ourselves the following question. What does that feel like? Can I relax into that more? Can I change that feeling? And that's where the dialogue starts. Once you actually work with the sensation, not as a concept, not as a concern, not, not of any of those other um, Conceptual perspectives on the thing but the actual sensations themselves that changes it that's the, the thing and i know you found that yourself
0: so sure, yeah. that's remarkable
1: yeah how simple
0: so you went into a little bit of what stretch therapy method is and and what i kind of said before one of the things that's um you have an advantage over a lot of people who are playing with this is the amount of data so i had started to say that and, and correct me if any of these numbers are wrong but um, over that time, when you had the program running at the university, there was about twenty-eight to twenty-nine thousand. Students who came and went for different lengths of time over 28 years. That's, That's about a remarkable it. amount of data. Well, it so, is. But yeah. I, have to,
1: I have to also interrupt you there and just say, look, we didn't collate this data. We did not. Sure. We could have. I sure. mean, we, I have been asked so many times by researchers, well, have you got any notes on this? Can yeah, I yeah. see the information? I yeah. said, no. All you can get is the global sense of a vast amount of experience yeah. and what we have found to be effective for most people always acknowledging that in the individual instance what we have found to be generally true may not be for this individual. But one thing I will also say that it's given us, which very few other systems have, because we've had to help people solve those problems, like this is not working for me, what do I need to do? Because we've had to solve that so many times with individuals, it's actually much more than 27,000 people, if I think about all the people we've um, worked with on workshops too, and that's an even more pressure cooker situation if you think about it because you if you work with someone on a two day workshop you've never met them before often you don't see them again after that time or you might see them in two or three years after that after their first experience um the tools that you need to have in your toolbox need to be immediately accessible and they need to be a wide and deep range of tools that i can honestly say our system does have that whatever your particular experience is in a position or a stretch it's very likely that we can, there is some way that we can come up that will help you.
0: Yeah, I just So you said then, you know, it's too hard to go into specific instances because there's so many factors involved. But from a global perspective, mm-hmm. in, and without anecdotal, just Mary did this or whatever. No. In terms of, and again, you could chat on this for an hour, but maybe just unpack a few of them. Sure. In terms of, say, injuries, you know, what from all that data, what was the frequency, severity, or causes of all those people? In other words, how little did the system cause injury to people? Mm-hmm. Um, and physical improvements, so if they came with pain, how effective was it in reducing pain, or certain disorders, or their posture? Uh, versus, say, the personality character changes, so the other side of that coin, not just the physical improvements, but what changed for them as as people that you saw over time?
1: Well, I'll answer the last question first. Um, the simple change that we observed literally over tens of thousands of people is they became more comfortable in themselves and they became happier. I'm not talking about some idiotic Pollyanna type of happiness where, la, 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 everything's rosy and wonderful. No, the one of the teachers I work with said to me once, and I, I didn't accept it at the time because I didn't believe it because it wasn't actually my experience, he said, human beings' natural state, and when I say natural state, when the the prison of our own mental structures is removed, is what he meant, when you are no longer consumed by what goes on between your ears, and, and every one of us has this, the voice that keeps chatting to us about we should be doing this, or we mustn't do that, or um, I want this, or... I hate that, and all the other things that the mind tells us all the time. Once that constraint has been removed, a human being's natural state is either happiness or peacefulness. and Sometimes people move between the two. Now, that wasn't my experience. But that we saw was the collective experience of a huge number of people over a very long period of time. Now, that's not something you can easily quantify. No. Um, But people would say to us, this is a classic one, and actually, the book, oddly enough, the book Overcome Neck and Back Pain um, came out of people's experience, so I'll get to talking to the physical things in a moment. But people would come up to us at the end of a semester and say, look, I don't know whether this has anything to do with the stretching, but I'm getting along better with my wife now. This happened again and again. And so in the beginning, because that's not what we realised about our own system, we actually learned all this stuff from our students. I would say to one, what do you mean you're getting along better with your wife? Please explain. And he said, well, he said we don't argue as much um, we talk to each other more. I think he said we're starting to understand each other better. And these people have been married for 25 years, I think. I remember he was a very famous scientist at the ANU. I'm thinking, oh, that's fascinating, that's fascinating. And so getting back to the earlier part of your question, which is the physical side of things. Mm-hmm. This is also what happened when people would enroll for classes we would ask them to tell us about any problems they had in their body but you know yourself as a therapist most people will not tell you what's wrong with them or what problems they have in their they body to to do things. they don't want to talk about it and but this is what happened and this this is where the book overcome neck and back pain came from we'd have people come up to us and this happened literally hundreds of times they would say i used to have this neck problem i used to have this back problem Um, It seems to be much better now. Do you think the stretching has anything to do with that? Now, look, we we can laugh about this now because, of course, it does. But you must understand, or not you must, but people need to understand that back then, which is now 25 years ago, this was not part of the discourse. No one was suggesting this. The doctors weren't suggesting stretching. Physiotherapists definitely weren't suggesting stretching as a, a technique for overcoming these problems. But it turned out that those things were very helpful, and they're very helpful at a huge number of levels. But as I said to the other day, to the group, I said, look, whilst all these other things might be experiences that people might have if they pursue these things for long enough, we don't talk about those things. We don't say, this is what stretch therapy will do for you. All we say is, it'll help you to become more flexible, and in time, you'll experience greater grace and ease in the body.
0: Well, I'm already seeing a little bit of that in the 20 to 30 people i've worked with for three months and you've said it this way i don't know if it was this week or another time that we've, we've hung out that when people get on the western medican treadmill um as, as as a way that you can say it they get told what to avoid what is wrong with them what they won't what they can't do what they won't ever be able to do yes. and what i'm seeing already with some of the people who have come in to the few classes I'm doing, who maybe even some of our Pilates systems were perhaps too much for them in some way. Hmm. They feel so empowered because they got a stretch that before they were, were fearful of, or, or they couldn't find a way to get it at all, and they came out of it, and nothing happened, and they felt like they got a stretch, and they're like, I can. I can. It, it changed. So powerful. You know, put that. the power back on them.
1: And and we can we can we can go even, we can unpack that even further. Look, any medical anthropology text will will make this claim somewhere that there, until the person who has the problem honestly and realistically accepts that they have a problem, and the further understanding that only they can actually do something about it, until they own that, no cure is possible. All treatments are palliative or momentary or temporary. So... This is such an important point. I'm hesitating because I'm not quite sure what point to dig in here, but the answer to those sorts of questions, as how I get over this injury, for example, can only be found inside you. And here's the the crazy thing is that no practitioner can actually help you with that. They can only show you what to do and how to do it. The actual answers to something like, you know, pull hamstring or whatever. That has to be found within you. And the empowerment dimension is when that person realises that by looking inside and doing things by themselves, all of a sudden this whole world opens up. That changes your perspective on the problem. Mm -hmm. It is immensely powerful.
0: Um, I said at the start here, so what about maybe the frequency or severity um, of injuries of those people coming to the program i know you said before they were only in the advanced oh let me talk about that i'll I'll, I'll, I'll try
1: to be brief about these Mm -hmm. things what we found in the 27 or 28 years that we were teaching classes at the uni is that not one person hurt themselves in a beginner's class that's remarkable but we would say and this is why no one hurt themselves in the first beginner's class we'd say look around the room make sure we had everyone's attention and say I'll have no sympathy for anyone who hurts themselves in class. And then I'd pause. And you can can imagine the looks on people's faces. Christ, that's an aggressive thing to say. That's a cruel thing to say, blah, blah, blah. And I'd go on to say, and the reason I'm saying that is that I'm going to treat you like an adult from the very first class. And here's the crucial point. It doesn't matter how experienced the teacher is at the front of the room, that teacher cannot see inside you and feel what's happening inside you only you can do that and we will make that your responsibility right from the very first exercise so a couple of if you like guiding principles fall out of that one don't move into a stretch too quickly don't move into it too deeply and make sure that when you're going into a position that you have your full awareness on the sensations in the body in the process of going into that position and when you teach people that as a tool to work with their bodies that also changes the whole thing because the locus of responsibility in our culture so often is on the practitioner. The practitioner's job is to make you better. I mean, it's, it's a fiction, of course, but this is, people will come to you and they'll say, I've got this problem, I want you to fix it. The practitioner's job is to carefully and gently point out that that's something that only that person can do for themselves, but we'll help you and we'll show you the, the ways that we found that I'd like you to be effective. If they embrace that approach, of course they could easily reject that approach and go off and find a different practitioner, and that's no problem. But if they do take on or start to take on the responsibility of taking care of themselves, everything changes. It's extremely powerful, as you know. You've been a practitioner for a long time.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I often find, and this is going off a tangent, so I'll quickly bring this back, but you often, not often, but occasionally you'll get someone come to you and say, I've got this back pain and I've seen X, Y, Z, Z and no one could help me hmm. and I very quickly learned to say well I probably can't either and they got this shot look <laughs> on their face and in a roundabout way you're saying because you're starting to identify it you're using it yeah, as sympathy, you're not. You're, you're not looking in the right direction <laughs> you're not wanting to yeah. remove it anyway um, so the next thing here I wanted to chat about because I think it's a central part of over all these years something that you've... Um, came up with or decided is a crucial part of the way to get progress or to get benefit from all of this is mind remapping. Hmm. Um, so what kind of experiments or data or results led you to this this concept? And then what percentage of it do you think is just been you, your experience and what you've seen versus provable, um, you know measured things
1: well let me just let me just if i may correct you on a small point nothing in science is ever proven this is what i did my phd research in among other things basically all of science and i put this in inverted commas progresses or deepens its understanding of the of the aspect of reality that they're trying to map more closely by putting up hypotheses and then testing those hypotheses and if and if the evidence that's, that, that, it, that is acquired in the testing of the hypothesis seem to support the hypothesis, then that hypothesis is accepted as being accurate or a good Currently description held. for yeah. the moment right. with the with the likelihood of it being revised sometime in the future. And if you look back through the history of science, that's th- that is an accurate representation of it. Now, as, as far as remapping goes, the book that was most influential and most helpful for me was a book called... Descartes' Error by Antonio Damasio. It's in our reading list on the website. In fact, all of the books that have influenced me, we've got a large collection of texts there. But what Antonio Damasio and his wife Hannah, who runs a parallel research team to his, you can imagine their dinner time conversations must be fantastically interesting. They're both working in the same field. Um, Antonio Damasio's brilliance was to understand for the first time that our emotional self is actually a property of the body. And its patterns of tensions are not a property of the mind. And so schools of psychology and psychiatry usually locate one's emotional self in the mind. What's a property of the brain? Putting it more formally. Um, Amda was able to find that Well, there's all sorts of interesting stories in that book and I would definitely recommend that to to readers. But the short story, getting back to the remapping that you asked about before, is that a combination of Damasio's work and our own work, and thinking about this over a long period of time, suggests that somewhere in a part of the brain called the somatosensory cortex, we have what can be described as a map. It's not actually a map; it's a it's a particular synapses, connections between neurons. So we can't actually see that. You can't even dissect the brain and see that, because it's only a property of living things. But there is a let's use the rough term. There is a representation in the somatosensory cortex of your body, what range of movement the limbs of your body have. It, this is where our capacity to close our eyes and touch our nose, for example, where the tip of our finger comes from. There is, if you, if you like, an aspect of the body and the mind, because it's only our culture that separates those two things. So let's say an aspect of being human is the capacity to know and to understand what the body's capacities are. Right? so yeah. look, for example I'm squatting at the moment I look at the bar, 60 kilos would be too heavy today because I'm too sore that's a concept that is translated into a direct experience in the body when we're talking about stretching let's imagine that our map is, looks like a rectangle let's say and while ever we stay inside what I call the known world which is, which is nothing more or less than our normal pattern of movement and our normal range of movement whenever we stay inside that we feel ourselves to be ourselves and we feel comfortable so for example if 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 listeners want to see what i'm trying to get at here if you reach up and touch the back of your head and just rub the back of your head for a moment with your fingertips most people don't actually experience that as a stretch in triceps they don't experience any difficulty in putting the hand on the back of the head but if we reach the arm out to the side at head height and turn it over so the thumb faces down and then reach the arm out behind us maintaining that height all of a sudden you'll feel a very strong stretch in the front of the arm. That's not a daily life movement and this is the deep reason why the triceps in everyone no matter whether you're a bodybuilder or a powerlifter or a handstander or whatever triceps are always softer than biceps. And So part of the, the mapping story is what are the movements of my normal daily life and if you stay inside that everything feels comfortable and normal. As soon as you get outside that, though, the body's fundamental protective mechanisms cut in. And the, for, for a beginning person learning how to stretch, the sensation of pain and the elicitation of the stretch reflex is at exactly the same point in the range of movement. When you become more familiar with this unknown territory and it ceases to be frightening or shocking or um, ceases to be experienced as something that is a threat of any kind. I mean, if I say to your listeners, for example, just imagine you drop down into side slits now. Now, if you don't have side slits in your body, even the very thought of trying to get into side slits will cause an emotional reaction inside you. That's the fight or flight response. And the emotion that's underneath that is fear. The body's just protecting itself, that's all. And so the stretch therapy method is nothing more than an elaborate, diverse collection of techniques to help the mind and the body explore these new ranges so that they become familiar to you and the outside observer sees the person getting more flexible as a result. Mm. And you know yourself, you've become more flexible. There is still the sensation of resistance when you move into a stretch, but the strong resistance is simply experienced much later in the range of movement. The experience is actually the same, but you can move more.
0: Yes, Yeah. originally, and I've seen this now, I'm grateful that I started so inflexible because I'm able to relate to people when they come in. I have less sympathy for it, but I'm able to relate. (laughs) And at first, when you're just so locked up because you've got no awareness of any of this, everything feels painful, everything feels fearful. But if you can back off enough to experience going outside that little rectangle and come back away from it without anything happening and knowing that I controlled it um, and that everything was okay is so empowering. And I've seen the look in people's eyes when they when they experience that as well. Mm-hmm. And then it's just a matter of just slowly opening that up.
1: You're enlarging the shape of that rectangle, that's all. Yeah.
0: Um, something I wrote down here that wasn't a part of what I wanted to chat about, but I feel like we're kind of around it. I love talking about the body as a, a, a metaphor, as a car. And I feel like the best and worst thing about the body is just how amazingly adaptable it is how robust it is and how it'll it'll do whatever you're telling it to do and it's kind of like the best land cruiser in the world well we take that for granted mm-hmm. heavily mm. if you had a car and you never got an oil change and you never checked the tire pressure and you never did any of these things any person you ask would would say yeah eventually that's going to break down but you're
1: not looking after it
0: right but we don't think about that with the body and so and it's quite easy to say well when you get old things get stiffer that's a that's a lazy way to point it it's not just because the body's age it's the way that you've lived that age that length of time exactly um the main reason people then come to into a class like this for me or what i've experienced is because something has gone wrong or something has happened and now they can no longer ignore that check engine light what would you say to someone who maybe is doing okay? Do they have to choose to... How do you know you, couldn't, you could be better if you don't know what better is?
1: It's, that's not our job. That's the short answer. Mm. That's not our job. It's up to the individual. For example, I was asked last night by email, um, what's the scientific justification for doing what we do? What's the proof, that this, this guy asked. And I just wrote back and said, there isn't any... That's not a very satisfactory answer for someone, mm. but the fact is the research that's been done into stretching has, it's appallingly thin and it's a very small body of work and most of it is poorly done or simply misleading. And why is that? Well, let's just take a step back. If, you, if we look at the aerobic response um, as a research subject, there's over half a million papers Written on the aerobic response in peer reviewed journals. And if we're looking at the strengthening or hypertrophy response, there's probably 200, 250,000 in peer reviewed journals. If we look at flexibility or stretching, there's a tiny handful of papers. They're all available if anyone's interested in a book called The Science of Stretching by Michael Alter. But the crazy thing is, none of those papers will actually tell you anything about how to become more flexible yourself. That's fascinating. Look, flexibility as a, as a characteristic of the human body is, is the last non-understood frontier. And by that I mean absolutely anyone and everyone knows how to get more fit aerobically. Everyone knows that. That is a well-understood phenomenon. If you load the body in a particular way and give it rest periods and so on and so forth, it will get more aerobically fit. The same with hypertrophy and um, strength training, whatever form of strength training we're talking about, whether it be powerlifting or Olympic lifting or body weight training, calisthenics, gymnastic strength training or whatever, the principles are well understood. Basically, you subject the body to a particular kind of stress, the body adapts to that, you make sure that the stress that you're giving the body is not too much. It has to be in a window of what I call tolerability. So it has to be sufficient to provoke the adaptation response. So if you don't do anything, nothing happens. But if it's too much, it'll break the system. So somewhere in the middle there, we play in this zone of tolerable stress. But in stretching, oh, and I should say one other thing about strength training and aerobic training, and again, this is not thought about very often, but any beginner in either of those fields will make progress on any routine. That is not true with stretching. The greatest resistance that you will ever experience to becoming more flexible is experienced in the beginning of your process. Whereas with with strength training and with aerobic training, and I have a background in both as you know, what happens is you rapidly improve in the beginning and then you reach a plateau and you change something and then you keep on improving, and the rate of improvement over time, over one's lifetime, slows down. With flexibility work, it's the opposite. The the most resistance by far is in the first year or two of trying to become more flexible. And then once you have learned how to work with your own system, the progress after that actually accelerates. It's completely counterintuitive because, as you mentioned, the people that you're talking about who you come across first who literally are locked up in their own bodies, they cannot conceive of the possibility of being relaxed and free and moving around the world feeling like you and I feel. They just cannot conceive of it. Mm. And so somehow, and, and this is a very important point, you cannot talk someone into that. And so, I mean, I am, I'm on top of the literature in this area, and I remember when I used to run stress management workshops um, for senior and middle managers in the public service, I would have the best possible arguments mustered And I'd trot them out. And the fact is, people are just falling asleep. They're not interested in the evidence. They're not interested in the science that's behind it or any of those things. So what I moved very rapidly to doing was just giving people a direct experience of what being slightly more relaxed or considerably more relaxed actually feels like. And then no argument, no evidence was necessary. They think, holy shit, this feels fantastic. I want, I want to know more about this. Yeah. And so that's what, our, what's what we recommend to the people that ask about the scientific justification. You say, look, don't worry about that. There is science there. But the most important thing is to get yourself off to a class and try a class or two and ask yourself at the end of it, how do I feel? And if it's not working for you, no problem. There's other things you can do.
0: Yeah. I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll pick holes in my generalisation here, but at least it will get chatting about <laughs> it. The ability to let go and relax talked about it endlessly and we've already sort of gone over why maybe a few different ways you could talk about what that actually means and I've just jotted a few down here so your mind body connection your emotional control being able to have breath utilization you know comprehension of this method your experience your physical awareness all those sorts of things if I put them on one axis Mm -hmm. of a graph and on the other axis I put your effectiveness, the results, your progress speed, just in terms of flexibility. Are those two things a linear, inter- in, uh, um, interlinked thing? Linear, do... linear,
1: no. Interlinked, yes.
0: Yeah. How, in other words, you know, the better my comprehension gets, the better I can let go. Do those other things happen?
1: I would say it's not mind comprehension that's involved in it at all. We uh, We use conceptual schema if I can use that term um, basically that's the furniture of our thinking the things that we use to think about things the conceptual schema is not necessarily connected to direct experience at all this is why we say in our criticism of some practitioners is you can know all about stretching that is what's known scientifically and what's in the literature you can know all about that and be able to recite statistics and um, adduce evidence and all that kind of thing, and that won't change your flexibility, one iota. And we live in a we live in a world of people that are experts on things but don't actually do it themselves. The world of direct experience is actually subvocal. It's underneath the world of words. It's subconceptual. It's actually I'll go further and say it's preconceptual. It's direct experience it's what in psychology is called affect sometimes the actual the the actual sensation in the body that later becomes emotion so there was a big there's a big debate in psychology back in the 1970s um, had had the title a wonderful title does affect precede cognition well it it does we feel everything first before we can verbalize it or vocalize it and so i mean that sounds like a one-way street but let me just give you a little thought experiment I don't mean it as a one-way street at all. What we're trying to grapple with here, with words, is something that words don't describe well. Here's the thought experiment. You're sitting at home with your loved one, you've had a glass of wine, everything's relaxed and happy, and the phone rings. No problem, you walk over, you pick up the phone, and there's the feeling of happiness and the feeling of expectation of being with your loved one. is maintained that whole little distance you walk along over to the phone. Landline, let's say, it's on the shelf. You pick up the phone... And as you put the phone to your ear, you become aware that the person on the other end of the line is your hated father-in-law. And in the instant of becoming aware of who it is on the end of this device, not actually there in presence, in front of you, you organise your body into a hated father-in-law mode. That's the particular shape of tension, past injuries, insults, blah blah blah, that this person represents conceptually to you. But very quickly your body organises itself as a result of having had that idea. And so a thought can most definitely cause that sensation body to react. But when we're talking about remaking our existing map, it is the, the world of sensation that we need to dive into, not the world of comprehension or the world of representation of what's happening. It is only direct experience that can shape the map and it is definitely not linear in fact in the beginning as I said there's massive resistance to any change and the attempt to change the shape of the map generally is experienced as either uncomfortable or downright threatening so we have to find a way of relaxing into what is normally experienced as an intrusion or a threat and that's where Working with your breath is absolutely invaluable. Listeners might like to try to feel their own tummies right now as I'm talking. Now, most people live with what I call a low level of anxiety or a low level of threat all the time. They're not actually relaxed naturally. Relaxation is somehow this extra special state that might come to you if you do enough practice of X, Y or Z. But actually, when most people are walking around, the threat level is extremely low. When you're sitting in your lounge room or wherever you are right now listening to this podcast, no one's about to attack you, but at the same time, we're holding and experiencing a low level of anxiety. How do we know? Well, if you try pressing your fingers into your own tummy, as you listen, you'll feel resistance. That resistance is actually unnecessary. And you felt my tummy, a time or two, it's completely soft. But anyone who is thinking about something, especially if the thought itself carries a cachet with emotional things or that, the body will respond by increasing its overall muscle tonus, its overall tension. And in fact, on that note, most people's neck and back problems are simply a result of holding too much of a particular kind of tension in particular areas, that's all. But people don't think about their problems as that. Generally speaking, if you can learn how to relax, if you only went along and did a self-hypnosis class or a, a lying relaxation class and know nothing spiritual about it or any of those kinds of things, if you simply learnt the techniques, and they're very learn learnable, there's a wonderful little book by a guy called Herbert Benson, Dr. Herbert Benson, called The Relaxation Response, and he was the first one to understand and to articulate exactly what role the parasympathetic nervous system really has in the experience of being human. And basically what it does is when you elicit the parasympathetic nervous response, all of the ramping up actions of the sympathetic nervous system, which is where the fight and flight response manifests, they're all run backwards. So your muscle tonus goes down, your pulse rate slows, um, your blood pressure decreases and so on and so forth. There is an opposite response to the response that most people have, are overly exciting all the time, which is the, really it's the fight-or-flight response, there is this opposite response, which Benson called the relaxation response, which literally winds all of those things back. But modern humans don't have it as a natural thing, and the reason is there was in our past no evolutionary advantage to being relaxed. The evolutionary advantage came from being able to fight harder, run quicker, jump higher, um, and take more, grab more exert force on the world the relaxation response is equally hardwired in your body it just needs some waking up when you can learn how to relax even your experience to what's going on inside yourself changes and so that's really the key to changing the map firstly being still enough to have the focus of the awareness be what's happening inside you rather than your iphone or your ipad that's the first thing. And secondly, the actual techniques of how you help the body to relax. That is, speaking neurophysiologically, how to elicit the parasympathetic nervous response. Mm. This is well understood. It's just not practiced very often.
0: So do you think you talking about that graph again, instead of being more that linear line, that it might be a case of almost very limited effectiveness results in progress until you have some understanding and can, and ability to let go relax yes and then it jumps up in the effectiveness because you have that and and is you know what i mean so yes I, I would Well, for personally kind of
1: personally i'm always a little distrustful of graphs um having spent a long time I knew, I knew in research, like research looking at graphs <laughs> Um, which often show things, well, a friend of mine, my mentor actually, Richard Sylvan, the most brilliant man I've ever met, he's dead now. Um, he's buried on a mountain in Bali, a, mountain, a remarkable mountain, another story. But he said famously once, and he was, he's probably Australia's greatest philosopher, greatest logician definitely, that was the area that I worked in, he said um, there are an infinite number of curves that can be fitted to any set of points. That's a shocker. We always assume that when we see points on a graph lining up in a particular way and we draw a line through it, um, that that's actually showing something about how the world is. And in, in many instances it is accurate. I mean, you know, height and weight graphs, for example, they're pretty accurate. But nonetheless, it's not as simple as that. And there is a... Well, again, going back to that earlier saying, the map is not the territory. That's not the experience. And so what we have found is that it's safer... To simply explore the world of experience rather than to generalize about what will happen with that person, but if I were asked and you did ask me to talk about these things most generally well it 's an absolutely necessary caveat in my opinion. Um, I would say there is nothing that a living body experiences that ever is linear. linear is the kind of we it 's like the a straight line or a point, they're concepts. Mm. Mm. So when we talk about linear, somehow linear, there's a safety in linear, there's a predictability about it, there is a, a knowability about it, because I can see where the, where the arrow is pointing. Mm. That is not how your body works. Right. So let me, make, let me make that clear. Anyone who's done any resistance training will know plateaus are normal. Anyone that's done any right. aerobic training knows that plateaus are normal. Anyone that starts stretching knows there is this incredible resistance to changing that. And so, if we were to, if it were even possible to chart our progress, you know, in some graphic form, it would be a zigzaggy line which appears to have no um, predictable direction to it. Right. And so, my strong suggestion is respectfully forget all that stuff yep. and simply uh, expose your students to the best quality of teaching that you can and let them find their own way through their own map. The thing is, Michael, each person's map is different. I know, look, okay, we're both male, right, and we both have arms and legs at each corner, and we're roughly the same size, but we are as different as as can be imagined, and yet we're still both human males. Mm. So really, and this is something that that very few people really grapple with deeply in their thinking, one of the things about the scientific method, which is not well understood, is it is an unique tool for answering particular kinds of questions. Science can't tell you anything about your internal subjective state. Absolutely nothing. We have to find that by ourselves. And that was actually what led me from my PhD research, which was in the science department, science and philosophy department, that's what led me back to my Buddhist studies. Because I realized, you know, I'm... I'm, Look, I'll, I'll be very brief about this, but my research area was the relationships between multiply existing causes in complex systems which is exactly what we're talking about, in fact. How to change this, how to you know, help people overcome their back problems or whatever, and back pain was the key case study of that. But I realised that I was using the wrong tool for the things that I was interested in. I wanted to find out more about what was happening inside me, not from a psychological perspective or psychiatric perspective, not to know about what was happening inside me but to actually be able to connect with and understand and use the raw data of the experience of being me and only being still only sitting or standing or lying and being still will actually reveal that to you mm.
0: let's uh let's go complete 180 sure and let's uh Let's speak to the person who said, "Shit, I've been sitting through a lot of stuff that's got nothing to do with stretching in their mind's eye." How do I go from zero to a front middle to a middle split and front splits? And does this system do that just from a pure data point of view? So, how many how many people have cared enough to stay with it long enough and have physically been an average adult who didn't start with any sort of flexibility to a child? And have and if they've had the desire, have been able to go to those sorts of lengths of poses? Thousands. Thousands. Simple as that. And hey, have the experience look, let me, of being in them where it's not a stretch, it's now a part of their map in a comfortable position. Yes. Look, if, wow. um, if
1: anyone picks up the book Stretching and Flexibility, there's a little film strip on the top and the bottom of the back page, the, the actual cover. And if you look on the top row, you'll see there's an old guy with a big spade beard. He was 67 when that photograph was taken, and he is sitting in as good front splits as I've ever seen. He started stretching with us seven years before that photograph was taken. He had a—he was a middle-distance runner, he was very inflexible, he certainly couldn't touch his toes, and in fact he had a bone spur in his ankle. That's what brought him to me initially. That's another story. But he managed to make it to that level of flexibility in seven years. Now, uh, is everyone going to do that? Well, firstly I should point out that he actually started stretching with us when he was 60 and so most people especially this young audience of yours and most people have been written off by the time they're 60 and the and the reason is a very fair reason too is that most 60 year olds are basket cases physically they can't do much at all and by the time they're 70 it's all over but it doesn't have to be that way and the real surprise and this will surprise your listeners i think is that The progress that an old person makes is actually very similar to the progress a young person makes. And we were talking about strength training the other, I think I was talking to you about this. But when we started gymnastic strength training, when we used to run the monkey gym in our facility, and then I think I was 55, something like that, and all the guys that I was working out with at the age of your listeners, so they're all sort of 25 to 35 roughly, and we just assumed, OK, well, the old guy's got a reasonable starting level of strength, but we're going to go past him in a you know, in a few months, six months. That, in fact, didn't happen. And it wasn't because there's anything special about my body. There's not. In fact, my front lever prep efforts were, were better than anyone else's in the group, but they were better in other things. Like, for example, two guys got perfect back levers within two years. Um, and I'm, I'm talking in perfect form here. And, you know, I never even came close to doing that. So there is there is certainly individual, you know... Uh, what attributes that one has that lends himself better to one kind of... For me, it was pushing rather than pulling. Mm. But the the point is this, we were all improving at roughly the same rate. That was a real surprise. And so to answer the question directly, somebody wants to be able to do front splits, I would have in mind a period of work somewhere between two and three years, if you're 25 to 35, and... You're serious about it now. Serious about it does not mean stretching every day. Too, by the way, it mm-hmm. means finding. Well, I can say right now, without even knowing who I'm talking to, the tightest. Well, let me take a step back. Anyone in the audience listening now can stand in front of a shelf and put their leg straight out in front of them on on a shelf, a middle shelf, and that'll be about 90 degrees at the hip. The average person who's doing involved in any kind of bodyweight training has at least that level of flexibility. What stops you putting the back leg out the same amount? hip flexors flexors. no one ever stretches their hip flexors Mm. so the one of the little tools if you like of this technique is to identify what your tightest line is in a particular task let's say it's front splits and work that tight line properly that I mean by 45 minute 50 minute hour workout once a week and then see what happens you need once you start working on your tightest lines, you're going to get DOMS of a sort you've never experienced before. The first time you stretch your hamstrings properly, for example, where you have a major breakthrough and you say you get three, two or three inches lower in front splits, a very good example, you're going to be your hamstrings are going to be sore for a week. You won't have hurt anything, but the the pressure of that change is so intense the body needs real time to adapt to that. And so our recommendation is if you are using a very strong infrequent dose of stretching rather than doing limbering every day which we also recommend then it's necessary if you have a goal like france to recover from that workout Mm. but that's only one way of working our friend Emmett and a bunch of other people have very intense techniques dynamic techniques and other techniques that are done daily and they also work so i want i want this on the table right from the offset the approach that we advocate We don't think for one moment or make any claim that it's an exhaustive approach or that it's the only approach, far from it. We're not experts in this field, and I say that because there are no experts in this field. There are a few people who know a bit about it, and we're one of those people. I'm not being falsely modest here either. And we work with people like M.M. it's a friend of mine personally, and we collaborate on things all the time. So he has a different approach to what we're doing, but he's also done our workshops too, and he likes a lot of our stuff as well. So the best thing, in my opinion, to do is to find someone who you actually like to work with, mm-hmm. like as a person, and also um, get some sense of what they can do with their own bodies. I don't mean someone who, you know, came from a, you know, work, I've seen work with hand balancers you who know, were trained in the Russian system and they started when they were three years of age. Those kind of people will usually have less insight in how to help an adult who's really stiff. And inflexible become flexible you really want to start with someone like you who wasn't particularly flexible in the beginning but who has actually found ways that work uh,
0: the reason my first uh, attraction to stretch therapy and, and I should say when I fe- I've told you before when I first came to your course I had no idea who you were I was just coming to a stretch weekend um, <laughs> sure. the reason I gave myself whiplash saying yes so many times to what you were saying was not for myself but for my clients at the Pilates studio that are between sort of 30 and 60 and they have a huge amount of that locked-up fear response to Mm -hmm. things. So the fact that your first priority was safe and effective and therefore maybe didn't require the ballistic or the everyday type stuff at first or for the general population um, was was awesome for me.
1: Well, can I interrupt you there and just say one little tiny important thing? The safety aspect um, has got nothing to do with... um, as I say, it's got nothing to do with you know, being worried about litigation or any of those kinds of things. What we found is that in the beginning with a locked-up person, the more locked-up a person is, the more gentle the technique you have to use to get past that barrier. Yeah, yeah. And once that barrier, or once the window has been opened and the person says, oh, I see, I can, I can move into a new range of movement with very little work and effort, and that actually feels safe, it changes their whole perspective on those things. So once... Someone has actually learned how to work with their body. Then all of these other techniques, which are fantastic techniques, right. they can all be used
0: yep. at the right on the time. The tool belt. Yep. Yeah. If we're, let's say we we've done that and we've gotten past those those initial stages, mm-hmm. and um, we're working towards, you know, what I'd like to maybe have a pancake. I, I think that's now possible for me, or, or or whatever it is. You know, going a little bit deeper. Hmm. Let's talk about conscious suffering. <laughs> because last night when I was, I'm staying with three of the people who were in this this week this week intensive teacher training, and yeah. uh, I gave them a quick rundown of what I had decided I would like to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. And the one that there was the most the least understanding and general consen- consensus in was the conscious suffering and understanding how much is required. How much do I need to be able to be relaxed in that? conscious suffering state or at some point I know you've spoken before about males looking for a full middle split and how it might be building up more to like a 30 second strong contraction and things mm-hmm. like that so at what point I know how to relax into it I'm doing contract relax I'm able to sink little bits at a time mm-hmm. but if I really let go and I've been there for a minute or two that that uh, it's just like when you stretch me a few times you stretch me mm-hmm level out of 10 is more an eight or nine or 11, okay? or yeah. 11 right? That's, So yeah. there's some conscious suffering going on. That's so it. how much of when and how do I know to go up to those eight, nine oh, 10? That
1: is, that is such such a great question. Well first let us make the distinction between conscious suffering and unconscious suffering. Unconscious suffering is the average person's normal daily life where you're worried about this or anxious about that or you're concerned about uh, your future career trajectory and all those other kinds of things. Um, that's ordinary suffering. Now, when I put this to my brother once, um, I said, well, you know, we are all suffering. He's, he looked at me and he said, I'm not suffering. And I said, oh, OK. Um, that's OK. Thanks for, for, for saying that. I said, so let me reframe that. Is there anything in your life that's unsatisfactory? And he just paused and he said, there's plenty of that. So, it doesn't matter what bloody word you're using. Unsatisfaction suffering, whatever. Suffering, I think, has has come to... It, it's overused and it's also misused. But anyway, let us say anything that you feel uneasy about or that you worry about or blah, blah, blah. That's, the way, that's what he that's meant by that. And all of that, by the way, none of that is in your body. It's all in the mind and what you're thinking about. But leaving that aside... When we talk about conscious suffering, we are explicitly saying that there will be times in your practice where you will need to choose to endure very strong sensations in order to change things. We strongly recommend against that in the beginning because you, the person who is experimenting with this conscious suffering, have no way of calibrating it and it will be dangerous. And we know people We know people from... Well, from our, both of our experience, that have hurt themselves doing these things. When you get strong enough, though, middle splits is a perfectly good example. We say you shouldn't even try to experience this really strong sensation in the body until you're actually strong enough in both legs to hold yourself up in wherever you are in middle splits with both legs. For men, particularly. Women, on the other hand, I'll just make this little side diversion. Women, we know from our experience, can learn to achieve middle splits completely by only relaxing, but very few men can do that. Some men can. I have known some men who can. And it is, in fact, the approach of yoga. The approach of yoga is you simply hang around in it for half an hour. And, of course, things change over time. But if you're talking about using a more active approach, where we're talking about contractions and maybe agonist-antagonist stretching and so on and so forth, where you are deliberately using force to bring about a result firstly you have to be strong enough to be able to exert that force safely and i can i mean i can i can cold i can swap myself in front splits now if you ask me to that my body's that strong now and it's not a special level of strength it's just a particular kind of strength that normal tech, uh, strength training doesn't give you as we've talked about before specifically it is strength at the end of the range of movement and that's what this system gives you you know better than any other system that i've seen And so then, if I say to you, you're going to have to do a maximum strength contraction for 30 seconds, don't imagine that that's going to be a pleasant feeling. It's bloody hard work. It's like grinding out that last three or four reps in a set of 10 back squats or front squats when you're working at your limit. You know it's doable, but you know it's going to hurt. It's that level of conscious suffering I'm talking about. And we know, conscious because we know we're doing it for a reason, and we also know it's going to end very soon. And then the restretch phase of that, supposing you do get a bit of a breakthrough in your front split, you need to hold that position for two or three minutes, let's say. And that's where your skill in learning how to relax will actually reduce the intensity. If you're fighting your body all the time, that intensity will be extremely high and that will not be a pleasant sensation. So again, we're trying to work somewhere in the window of sufficient stress to provoke a change, but not so much stress that an injury is threatening or actually happens. Mm. That's all. That's what I mean by conscious suffering.
0: So for the people who might um, decide to listen to this who are sort of not my Pilates community but the other people that I've worked out with in movement and GST and that sort of stuff, most of the injuries that, I've aware, that I'm have that i aware of have come from ballistic or weighted yes. movements. If we took that out of it, and let's say we're talking about a pancake and the back of my knee sits flat on the floor and I'm just reaching forward. So yes, I've got my torso in, in gravity, even if I bolster that up. If I'm using myself against myself, what are the likelihood of still causing a tear or injury?
1: Okay, look, that's a very good question. And and I just want to expand on something that Michael said about using myself to stretch myself. That is using the antagonistic muscles to the stretching action to actually do the work of pulling yourself deeper into the stretch. So if we use the pancake as an example, and it's a perfect one, let's say when you sit in your pancake, your back is straight and your body's about 45 degrees to the floor or better then in my view you're definitely a very good candidate for using this active reaching technique. So what you do is you put a yoga block on the floor in front of you and you basically use gentle, or can be strong or gentle, anywhere in between those two extremes, pulsing movements to press the yoga block a little bit further away from you each time. So you press, you push it, come back, press, push it, come back. Um, that's one of Emma's techniques and one of our techniques as well that will work extremely effectively and this is what i'm going to say if you're moving with full awareness and you're not forcing yourself it is impossible to hurt yourself when you're doing that Mm. impossible
0: remove the momentum reduce it still use it so that's why
1: we talk about pulsing rather than ballistic stretching pulsing is this So, supposing just another thought experiment you're sitting in straddle you're reaching towards the yoga block you're not reaching with a frenzied mad rush effort to try and get into your better pancake you reach out to the yoga block you put your fingertips against the yoga block and you push the yoga block away from you and come back from that position take a breath in as you breathe out push the yoga block further away from you and come back if you're moving like that you can't hurt yourself if you are doing something a little different here's a perfect example. If you're one of the exercises we recommend strongly and was very helpful to me in fact is putting a couple of benches in the corner of a room and picking up the heaviest kettlebell you can find standing in a standing pancake and using that kettlebell to drag you towards the floor. Now if you're strong enough you will get away with that but if you're not very strong and you try to do weighted stretching where you can't actually control the movement or the momentum of the weight, yes there's a danger of hurting yourself there. Best to get strong <laughs> i can't yeah. say this too, too often enough when i was doing that weighted pancake work standing pancake work i was using a from memory a 36 kilogram kettlebell and that was the limit of my strength in that position mm. today i'd probably might be able to use a 16 or a 20 maybe mm. anyway mm. that's just to give people an idea of the sorts of what weight, real weights yeah i mean it is possible um and it's possible to do this you can put a, a 50 kilogram kettlebell down on the floor in between the bench you can bend your knees and you can pick it up but the question you've got to ask yourself as you slowly start to straighten your legs is can i control this weight if the answer is no don't straighten your legs it's about control mm-hmm. i hope that answers the question yeah
0: yeah yeah one more last sure. thing here um and this is, this is just selfishly for me and my own business. Uh, let's say you've had a change of heart and career and you've decided to come be my receptionist in the studio. Mm-hmm. And um, a new person walks in and they say, you know, I saw a little pamphlet on this stretch therapy thing. I've looked into it a little bit, you know. Um, I'm feeling a little bit tight, um, you know. Besides getting a little more uh, looser, what else is it about what's the short answer for that without holding that person for a half hour to give them that benefit or to sell them on the what they're what they're going to get out of it
1: well i'll i'll recount a little a very short story from my own personal journey i work with a teacher once and he said to me you know if i ever start a school i'm going to call it the happy for absolutely no reason at all school mm. that's my answer
0: yeah
1: and look, look it would actually depend very much on... There isn't one short answer. All we ever promise in our system, and this is what we write on our website, is grace and ease in the body, and we, we used to say more efficient movement, now we say more cat-like movement. Now, that's not a big claim. Notice we're not offering splits or frontpits or any of those kinds of things, but the, the journey has to start somewhere. Right. And so for most people... Grace and ease in the body, it doesn't sound like much of an ambition, but the fact is when you talk to people and you ask them, are you feeling graceful and at ease in your body? And that's not what I'd say to, as a receptionist, by the way, but I'm getting around to making the point. Mm. Most people will say, well, look, you were in the room the other day when I said, Who put up your hands, everyone here, everyone here is a health practitioner of one sort or another, put up your hands here, anyone who's hurt themselves in the pursuit of health. And everyone put up their hand. And this is a room full of people that work with their bodies all the time. Everyone has had an injury in the past caused by wanting to make the body do something it didn't want to do, right? Mm-hmm. So let's, let's, let's just accept that that's reality for most people. Or if they're, um, you know, a computer jockey, um, they'll have a stiff neck or your shoulders don't move particularly well. They want to, they want to learn how to do handstands, but their shoulder angle is so close, they're not going to injure themselves if you put them up in a wall handstand, for example. All we say is, well, you're, I'd say, you're in the right place. And they'd say, what do you mean you're in the right place? Well, you're going to learn to move more freely and more easily, be more comfortable in your body. How does that sound? Yeah. And if you want to do front splits at some time in the future too, that's also available. That, oh, yeah. That's going to be a year or two down the track. Yeah. You interested? Okay, sign here.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I keep when my time, is up, so I have no idea how long
1: that was. I but, have no um, idea either. I'll tell you. you. When, thank when, you. That when was we... awesome. A pleasure, my friend, and I hope to see you. Well, in fact, I will see you again this afternoon. Okay, yeah, anyway. mate. Yeah. Thanks. Right. See ya.